Section twelve of the Satyricon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Miette. The Satyricon by Gaius Petronius Arbiter. Translated by W. C. Firebow. Volume Three Further Adventures of Encolpius and His Companions. Chapter the Eighty Ninth. But I see that your whole attention is held by that picture which portrays the destruction of Troy, so I will attempt to unfold the story in verse. And now the tenth harvest beheld the beleaguered of Troia, worn out with anxiety, fearing the honour of Calchas. The prophet hung wavering deep in the blackest despair. Apollo commanded, the forested peaks of Mount Ida were felled and dragged down. The hewn timbers were fitted to fashion a war-horse. Unfilled as a cavity left, and this cavern roofed over capacious enough for a camp. Here lie, hidden, the raging impetuous valour of ten years of warfare. Malignant Greek troops pack the recess, lurk in their own offering. Alas, my poor country! We thought that their thousand grim warships were beaten and scattered, our arable lands freed from warfare. The inscription cut into the horse, and the crafty behaviour of Sinon, his mind ever powerful for evil, affirmed it. Delivered from war, now the crowd carefree hastens to worship, and pours from the portals. Their cheeks wet with weeping, the joy of their tremulous souls brings to eyes tears which terror had banished. Lacun, priest unto Neptune, with hair loosed, an outcry evoked from the mob. He drew back his javelin and launched it. The belly of wood was his target. The weapon recoiled, for the fates stayed his hand, and this artifice won us. His feeble hand nerved, he anew, and the lofty sides sounded. His two-edged axe tried them severely. The young troops, in ambush, gasped. And as long as the reverberations re-echoed, the wooden mass breathed out a fear that was not of its own. Imprisoned, the warriors advanced to take Troia a captive, and finish the struggle by stratagem new and unheard of. Behold, other portents, where Tenedos steep breaks the ocean, where great surging billows dash high, to be broken and leap back to form a deep hollow of calm and resemble the plashing of oars carried far through the silence of night as when ships pass and drive through the calm as it smashes against their fir boughs then backward we look toward the rocks the tide carries two serpents that coil and uncoil as they come, and their breasts, which are swollen aside, dash the foam, as the bows of tall ships, 
and the ocean is lashed by their tails, their manes free on the water, as savage as even their eyes, now a blinding beam kindles the billows. The sea with their hissing is sibilant, all stare in terror. Laocoon's twin sons in Phrygian raiment are standing with priests wreathed for sacrifice. Them did the glistening serpents enfold in their coils. With their little hands shielding their faces, the boys, neither thinking of self but each one of his brother, fraternal love's sacrifice. Death himself slew those poor children by means of their unselfish fear for each other. The father, a helper too feeble, now throws himself prone on their bodies. The serpents, now gluttoned with death, coil around him and drag him to earth. And the priest, at his altar a victim, lies beating the ground. Thus the city of Troy, doomed to sack and destruction, first lost her own gods by profaning their shrines and their worship. The full moon now lifted her luminous beam, and the small stars led forth, with her torch all ablaze, when the Greeks drew the bolts and poured forth their warriors on Priam's sons, buried in darkness and sodden with wine. First the leaders made trial of their weapons, just as the horse, when unhitched from Thessalian neck-yoke, first tosses his head and his mane, ere to pasture he rushes. They draw their swords, brandish their shields, and rush into the battle. One slays the wine-drunken Trojans, prolonging their dreams to death, which ends all. Still another takes brands from the altars, and calls upon Troy's sacred temples to fight against Trojans. CHAPTER THE NINETIETH Some of the public, who were loafing in the portico, threw stones at the reciting Eumolpus, and he, taking note of this tribute to his genius, covered his head and bolted out of the temple. Fearing they might take me for a poet, too, I followed after him in his flight and came to the seashore, where we stopped as soon as we were out of range. Tell me, I demanded, what are you going to do about that disease of yours? You've loafed with me less than two hours, and you've talked more often like a poet than you have like a human being. For this reason I'm not at all surprised that the rabble chases you with rocks. I'm going to load my pockets with stones too, and whenever you begin to go out of your head I'm going to let blood out of it. His expression changed. My dear young man, said he, today is not the first time I have had such compliments showered upon me. The audience always applauds me in this fashion. When I go into the theatre to recite anything, but I'll abstain from this sort of diet for the whole day, for fear of having trouble with you. Good, I replied. We'll dine together if you'll swear off crankiness for the day. So saying, I gave the housekeeper the orders for our little supper, and we went straight off to the baths. Chapter the ninety-first There I catch sight of Giton laden with towels and scrapers, leaning downhearted and embarrassed against the wall. You could see that he did not serve of his own free will. Then 
that I might assure myself that I saw right. "'Take pity on me, brother!' he cried, turning toward me, a face lighted up with joy. "'There are no arms here. I can speak freely. Take me away from that bloody robber, and punish your penitent judge as severely as you like.' "'To have perished, should you wish it, will be a consolation great enough in my misery.' Fearing some one might overhear our plans, I bade him hush his complaints, and, leaving Eumolpus behind, for he was reciting a poem in the bath, I pulled it on down a dark and dirty passage after me, and fly with all speed to my lodgings. Arriving there, I slammed the door shut, embrace him convulsively, and press my face against his which is all wet with tears. For a long time neither of us could find his voice, and as for the lad, his shapely bosom was heaving continuously with choking sobs. "'Oh, the disgraceful inconsistency of it all!' I cried, "'for I love you still, although you abandoned me, "'and no scar from that gaping wound is left upon this breast. "'What can you say that will justify you in yielding your love to a stranger? "'Did I merit such an affront?' "'He held his head higher when he found that he was loved. "'For one to love, and at the same time blame,' That were a labour Hercules to tame. Conflicting passions yield in Cupid's name. And furthermore, I went on, I was not the one that laid the cause of our love before another judge, but I will complain no more. I will remember nothing if you will prove your penitence by keeping faith. He wiped his face upon his mantle while I poured out these words with groans and tears. Enculpius, he said, I beseech you, I appeal to your honest recollection, did I leave you, or did you throw me over? For my part I admit, and openly at that that I sought refuge with the stronger, when I beheld two armed men. I kissed that bosom so full of prudence, threw my arms around his neck and pressed him tightly against my breast, that he might see unmistakably that he had gotten back into my good graces, and that our friendship lived again in perfect confidence. Chapter the Ninety-Second Night had fallen by this time, and the woman to whom I had given my order had prepared supper, when Eumolpus knocked at the door. "'How many of you are there?' I called out, and as I spoke I peeped cautiously through a chink in the door to see if Ascyltos had come with him. Then, as I perceived that he was the only guest, I quickly admitted him. He threw himself upon the pallet and caught sight of Giton, waiting table, whereupon he nodded his head. "'I like your Ganymede,' he remarked. "'This day promises a good ending.' I did not take kindly to such an inquisitive beginning, fearing that I had let another Esquiltos into my lodging. Eumolpus stuck to his purpose. I like you better than the whole bathful, he remarked, when the lad had served him with wine. Then he thirstily drained the cup dry, and swore that never before had he tasted a wine with such a satisfying tang to it. 
"'While I was bathing,' he went on, "'I was almost beaten up for trying to recite a poem "'to the people sitting around the basin. "'And when I had been thrown out of the baths, "'just like I was out of the theatre, "'I hunted through every nook and cranny of the building, "'calling, Encopius! Encopius! at the top of my voice. "'A naked youth at the other end, who had lost his clothes, "'was bawling just as loudly and no less angrily, for Giton. "'As for myself, the slaves took me for a maniac, "'and mimicked me in the most insolent manner. "'But a large crowd gathered around him, "'clapped its hands in awe, "'struck admiration, for so heavy and massive were his private parts, "'that you would have thought that the man himself "'was but an appendage of his own member.' "'Oh, such a man! I haven't a doubt but that he could begin on the day before "'and never finish till the day after the next. "'And he soon found a friend, of course, some Roman knight or other. "'I don't know his name, but he bears a bad reputation, so they say. "'Threw his own mantle around the wanderer and took him off home with himself, "'hoping, I suppose, to have the sole enjoyment of so huge a prize.' "'but I couldn't get my own clothing back from the officious bath attendant "'till I found someone who could identify me, "'which only goes to show that it is more profitable to rob up the member "'than it is to polish the mind. "'While Eumolpus was relating all this, I changed countenance continually, "'elated naturally at the mishaps of my enemy, and vexed at his good fortune. "'But I... "'controlled my tongue, nevertheless, as if I knew nothing about the episode, "'and read aloud the bill of fare. "'Hardly had I finished when our humble meal was served. "'The food was plain, but succulent and nutritious, "'and the famished scholar Eumolpus fell to ravenously. "'Kind providence unto our needs has tempered its decrees "'and met our wants.' our carping plants to still. Green herbs and berries hanging on their rough and brandly sprays suffice our hunger's gnawing pangs to kill. What fool would thirst upon a river's bank, or stand and freeze in icy blasts, when near a cosy fire? The law sits armed outside the door, adulterers to seize. The chaste bride, guiltless, gratifies desire. All nature lavishes her wealth to meet our just demands. But, spurred by lust of pride, we stop at naught to gain our ends. Our philosopher began to moralise when he had gorged himself, levelling many critical shafts at those who hold everyday things in contempt, esteeming nothing except what is rare. Chapter the Ninety-Third to their perverted taste, he went on, everything one may have lawfully is held cheap, and the appetite, tickled only by forbidden indulgences, delights in what is most difficult to obtain. The pheasant from Colchis, the wild fowl from African shores. Because they are dainties, the parvenu's palate adores. The white feathered goose, and the duck in his bright coloured plumes, must nourish the rabble. They're coming, so them fashion dooms. The rass brought from dangerous Seatis is much more esteemed when fishing boats founder. 
and even the mullet is deemed. No matter how heavy, a weight on the market, the whore displaces the wife, and in perfumes the cinnamon more is esteemed than the rose. So whatever we have we despise, and whatever we have not we think a superlative prize. Is this the way in which you keep your promise not to recite a single verse today? I demanded. Bear in mind your promise, and spare us at least, for we have thrown no rocks at you yet. If a single one of those fellows drinking under this very roof were to smell out a poet in their midst, he would arouse the whole neighbourhood and involve all of us in the same misunderstanding. Giton, who was one of the gentlest of lads, took me to task for having spoken in that manner, denying that I did rightly in criticising my elders, and at the same time forgetting my duties as host by offering an affront to one whom I had invited out of kindness. And much more full of moderation and propriety, which was in exquisite keeping with his good looks. Chapter the ninety-fourth "'Happy the mother!' cried Eumolpus, "'who bore such a son as you. "'May your fortune be in keeping with your merit. "'Beauty and wisdom are rarely found mixed. "'And that you may not think that all your words are wasted, "'know that you have found a lover. "'I will fill my verses with your prayers. "'I will act as your guardian and your tutor, "'following you even when you bid me stay behind.' nor can Inculpius take offence, he loves another. The soldier who took my sword from me did Eumolpus a good turn, too, otherwise the rage which I had felt against Ascyltos would have been quenched in the blood of Eumolpus. Seeing what was in the wind, Giton slipped out of the room, pretending he was going after water, and by this diplomatic retreat he put an end to my fury. Then, as my anger cooled little by little, Eumolpus, I said, rather than have you entertain designs of such a nature, I would even prefer to have you spouting poetry. I am hot-tempered, and you are lecherous. See how uncongenial two such dispositions must be. Take me for a maniac. Humour my malady. In other words, get out quick. Taken completely aback by this onslaught, Eumolpus crossed the threshold of the room without stopping to ask the reason for my wrath, and immediately slammed the door shut, penning me in, as I was not looking for any move of that kind then, having quickly removed the key, he hurried away in search of Giton. Finding that I was locked in, I decided to hang myself, and had already fastened my belt to the bedstead, which stood alongside of the wall, and was engaged in fastening the noose around my neck when the doors were unlocked and Eumolpus came in with Giton, recalling me to light, when I was just about to turn the fatal goal-post. Giton was greatly wrought up, and his grief turned to fury. Seizing me with both hands, he threw me upon the bed. "'If you think, Enculpius,' he shrieked, "'that you can contrive to die before I do, you're wrong. "'I thought of suicide first. "'I hunted for a sword in Escyltos's house. "'I would have thrown myself from a precipice if I had not found you. "'You know that death is never far from those who seek him, "'so take your turn and witness the spectacle you wished to see.' 
So saying, he snatched a razor from Eumolpus's servant, slashed his throat once, twice, and fell down at our feet. I uttered a loud cry, rushed to him as he fell, and sought the road to death by the same steel. Giton, however, showed not the faintest trace of any wound, nor was I conscious of feeling any pain. The razor, it turned out, was untempered and dull, and was used to imbue boy apprentices with the confidence of the experienced barber. Hence it was in a sheath, and, for the reasons given above, the servant was not alarmed when the blade was snatched, nor did Eumolpus break in upon this farcical death scene. CHAPTER THE NINETY-FIFTH the landlord made his appearance with a part of our little supper. While this lover's comedy was being enacted, and taking in the very disorderly spectacle which we presented, lying there and wallowing as we were, "'Are you drunk?' he demanded. "'Or are you runaway slaves, or both? "'Who's turned up that bed there? "'What's the meaning of all these sneaking preparations? "'You didn't want to pay the room rent.' "'You didn't, by Hercules, you didn't. "'You wanted to wait till night and run away into the public streets. "'But that won't go here. "'This is no widow's joint. I'll show you that. "'Not yet it ain't. "'This place belongs to Marcus Manicius.' "'So you threaten, do you?' yelled Eumolpus, "'giving the fellow a resounding slap in the face.' At this the latter threw a small earthenware pitcher, which had been emptied by the draughts of successive guests, at Eumolpus's head, and cut up in the forehead of his cursing adversary. Then he skipped out of the room. Infuriated at such an insult, Eumolpus snatched up a wooden candlestick, ran in pursuit of his retreating foemen, and avenged his broken head with a shower of blows. The entire household crowded around, as did a number of drunken lodgers, but I seized this opportunity of retaliating, and locked Eumolpus out, retorting his own trick upon the quarrelsome fellow, and found myself without a rival, as it were, able to enjoy my room and my night's pleasure as well. In the meantime, Eumolpus, locked out as he was, was being very roughly handled by the cooks and scullions of the establishment. One aimed a spitful of hissing hot guts at his eyes. Another grabbed a two-tined fork in the pantry and put himself on guard. But worst of all, a blear-eyed old hag, girded round with a filthy apron, and wearing wooden clogs which were not mates, dragged in an immense dog on a chain and sicked him upon Eumolpus. But he beat off all attacks with his candlestick. CHAPTER THE NINETY-SIXTH We took in the entire performance through a hole in the folding doors. This had been made but a short time before, when the handle had been broken and jerked out, and I wished him joy of his beating. Giton, however, forgetting everything except his own compassion, thought we ought to open the door and succour Eumolpus in his peril. But being still angry— I could not restrain my hand. Clenching my fist, I wrapped his pitying head with my sharp knuckles. In tears he sat upon the bed while I applied each eye in turn to the opening, 
filling myself up as with a dainty dish, with Eumolpus's misfortunes and gloating over their prolongation, when Bargetes, urgent for the building, called from his dinner. He was carried into the midst of the brawl by two chairmen, for he had the gout. He carried on for some time against drunkards and fugitive slaves in a savage tone, and with a barbarous accent, and then looking around and catching sight of Eumolpus. "'What?' he exclaimed. "'Are you here, nay, prince of poets? And these damned slaves don't scatter at once and stop their brawling!' Then, whispering in Eumolpus's ear, "'My bedfellow's got an idea that she's finer-haired than I am. Lampoon her in a poem, if you think anything of me, and make her ashamed!' Chapter the ninety seventh. Eumolpus was speaking privately with Bargates when a crier attended by a public slave entered the inn, accompanied by a medium sized crowd of outsiders. Waving a torch that gave out more smoke than light, he announced, Strayed from the baths a short time ago, a boy about sixteen years of age, curly headed, a minion, handsome. Answers to the name of Giton. One thousand Cestuses reward will be paid to anyone bringing him back, or giving information as to his whereabouts. Ascultus, dressed in a tunic of many colours, stood not far from the crier, holding out a silver tray upon which was piled the reward as evidence of good faith. I ordered Giton to get under the bed immediately, telling him to stick his hands and feet through the rope netting which supported the mattress, and, just as Ulysses of old had clung to the ram, so he, stretched out beneath the mattress, would evade the hands of the hunters. And Giton did not hesitate at obeying this order, but fastened his hands in the netting for a moment, outdoing Ulysses in his own cunning. For fear of leaving room for suspicion, I piled covers upon my pallet, leaving the impression of a single person of my own stature. Meanwhile, Ascyltus, in company with the magistrate's servant, had ransacked all the rooms, and had come at last to mine, where he entertained greater hopes of success because he found the doors carefully barred. The public slave loosened the bolts by inserting the edge of his axe in the chink. I threw myself at Ascyltus' feet, begging him, by the memory of our friendship and our companionship in suffering, to show me my brother, safe and sound, and furthermore that my simulated prayers might carry conviction. I added, I know very well, Ascyltus, that you have come here seeking my life. If not, why the axes? "'Well, fatten your grudge, then. Here's my neck. Pour out that blood you seek to shed under pretext of a search.' Ascyltus repelled the suspicion, affirming that he sought nothing except his own fugitive, and desired the death of neither man nor suppliant. And least of all did he wish to harm one whom, now that their quarrel was over, he regarded as his dearest friend.' Chapter the Ninety-Eighth The public servant, however, was not derelict in the performance of his duty, for, 
Snatching a cane from the innkeeper, he poked underneath the bed, ransacking every corner, even to the cracks in the wall. Twisting his body out of reach, and cautiously drawing a full breath, Giton pressed his mouth against the very bugs themselves. The pair had scarcely left the room, when Eumolpus burst in in great excitement, for the doors had been broken and could keep no one out. "'The thousand sesterces are mine!' he shouted. "'I'll follow that crier out and tell him Giton is in your power, "'and it will serve you right, too.' "'Seeing that his mind was made up, "'I embraced his knees and besought him not to kill a dying man. "'You might have some reason for being excited,' I said, "'if you could produce the missing boy. "'But you cannot, as the thing stands now, "'for he escaped into the crowd.' and I have not even a suspicion as to where he has gone. Get the lad back, Eumolpus, for heaven's sake, even if you do restore him to Ascyltos. I had just succeeded in persuading him to believe all this, when Giton, nearly suffocated from holding his breath, suddenly sneezed three times and shook the bed. Eumolpus turned at the commotion, "'Hello, Giton!' he exclaimed. "'Glad to see you!' Then he turned back the mattress and discovered an Ulysses, who even ravenous Cyclops might have spared. Thereupon he faced me. "'You robber!' he said. "'What does all this mean? You hadn't the nerve to tell me the truth even when you were caught. If the god that umpires human affairs hadn't forced a sign from this boy as we hung there, I would be wandering from one pothouse to another like a fool. But Giton was far more tactful than I. First of all, he dressed the cut upon Eumolpus's forehead with spider's web soaked in oil. He then exchanged the poet's torn clothing for his own cloak. This done, he embraced the old gentleman, who was already somewhat mollified, and poulticed him with kisses. "'Dearest of fathers,' he cried, "'we are entirely in your hands, in yours alone. "'If you love your jeton, do your best to save him. "'Would that some cruel flame might devour me alone, "'or that the wintry sea might swallow me, for I am the cause for all these crimes. Two enemies would be reconciled if I should perish.' "'Moved by our troubles, but particularly stirred by jeton's caresses,' "'You are fools!' exclaimed Eumolpus. "'You certainly are. "'Here you are gifted with talents enough to make your fortunes, "'and you'll still lead a life of misery, "'and every day you bring new torments upon yourselves, "'as the fruits of your own acts.'" End of section 12 Recording by Miette